Okay. I'm at home today. G- gas prices again? Probably... <laughs> Dude. That's He's like, that's not even a joke, prices. fam. It's not. No, I mean, that's why I, that's why I worked I worked from home all last week cuz I got a big truck that I don't want to have to drive. Yeah, I don't want to spend the gas money, you know. Bro, what has it been like 2 weeks since we had a chance to actually So, yes, we, we, yeah. So, I don't think people understand Knox Unplugged is not like, "Oh, hey, let's go do a show." It's not that. It really is David is talking to Jason. <laughs> and and so we even we haven't even had a chance really to talk and communicate even over the phone, which is all Knox Unplugged really is is our phone conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just starting to record the phone conversations. Everybody's like, "Did I miss the show when it started?" It's like, no, there's no sh- there's no show. It's just <laughs> it's unplugged. It really just me calling Jason, talking to Jason about stuff, and Jason's like, "Okay, you're gonna have questions." I'm just going to be a little red up on what it is. You're probably going to have questions about it. <laughs> and then we're just going to What's my, go for it's it. It's mostly like get make sure I can get the names and dates right. I, I have a hard time remembering dates. Yeah. So um, I kind of think of it all like a big story. And so I think of it in terms of its order, not so much it dates. But me when too. You start re- like the, the way, the way, da- the reason dates are helpful is you've got like, oh, here's the political story. Here's the philosophical story. Here's what's going on in art. You can, you can line them up if you know the dates. Um, you know, so that's, I mean, dates are important and they're, uh, but my memory doesn't work that way you know, as, you know, as much. So here's, you know, that really, um, I started really realizing how important it was to understand dates because um, you have uh, multiple things happening in the world at one time. And so you start synthesizing yeah. kind of where the culture is moving and how it's bending and what's going on, you know? So, you know, you got the, um, you got, for instance, the London Baptist confession, 1689, right? Well, 1689, you had yeah. stuff going on over here, right? We got the 1619 right. projects is right before that, that people want to talk about what's happening in America then. And there's all these points in time where the, the real one that helped me out was looking at, um, the World War One and World War Two, and saying, "Wait a second, there was a lot going on in the world that led up to that, and those moments themselves." Um, and the twenties, understanding the twenties, really helped me understand the fifties and the sixties, right? And then I was right, able to understand right. the seventies and the eighties, right? And so, um, yeah, being connected to those dates is super helpful. I, oh, I got to tell you. Um, oh, your camera is doing some weird. Oh, it's, it's tracking you all the way down there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's kind of cool and unnecessary all at the same time. It's totally <laughs> unnecessary, but it, it still costs less than the uh, next most expensive 4K camera. So. You, with all the geo, have you seen 2,000 Mules yet? From um, no, I okay. I, it, it'll make you not I, want I a camera like that. <laughs> oh, because they can. They can like hack in and I just saw, me around. I just saw your camera see basically from where you're sitting right now at your eye level to go all the way down and see your feet. And a camera with that kind of view, range of view, bothers me if they can geo track you and all that. So <laughs> they can just see everything. They can just see everything. So um so dude <laughs> your boy got the five foot shelf of books. 
Is that what you call him from Harvard? Yeah, the the Harvard Harvard five foot shelf of books. Was it Charles Elliott who who designed that? Yeah, well, he, well, I think he was the president of Harvard at the time, and somebody was like, "Why should everybody go to Harvard?" And he said, "Well, for the education." He said, "But the education is available to anyone with a five foot sh- book sh- five foot belt bookshelf." I had to go grab my books real quick, so here goes. 50 it's 51 books 51 books and i got all 51 and i got it for an amazing deal and i started just there's one book the 50th book which is really weird it says introduction reader's guide index it's like you might want to make this book one just maybe (laughs) and i started reading the introduction what did did they put as one did they put uh, it's Homer, not Homer, Plato, Augustine. I thought Benjamin Franklin was at one. Oh, okay. I'm. I have to go back and. So it's not. Yeah. I I should go back and look. I, I can't remember. I think his autobiography is at one, but it was really. This is crazy. The editor's introduction, reader's guide, index to the first lines of poems, songs, and courses, hymns, and psalms. General index, chronological index. And he goes through, and in the first part of this editor's introduction to the Harvard classics, he talks about his purpose. And he says, within the limits of the 50 volumes containing about 22,000 pages. And I started thinking, it's like, going through this introduction, one of the first things that he starts talking about is basically the whole goal of people being educated was so that they can maintain their freedom that they had had handed down to them by their forefathers. And when I think about education, most of the time I'm not thinking about being free. Right. Right. And they they called it liberal arts because it was about Liberty. Right. Right. It's the education of, of, uh, of liber liberated people. And and so he basically said, so I was thinking, I was asking you, I was like, man, how long is it going to take me to go through all these? Fi- That's a lot of books. Like I might get through, honestly, reading book cover to cover. I might get through 12 books a year. Right. That's that's yeah. my goal. Um, and I think I'm pretty average on that. <clears throat> but 51 in-depth books to get in your head and and. and <sighs> And so, anyway, couple, couple. So I asked you, I was like, "Man, how long is it going to take me to go through this?" And you were like, "What, ten years or something like that?" Yeah, I mean, it's an edu- it's an education that you're after, right? It's a, <sighs> this is like, if if this was if if we had our education system functioning properly, it's the high school and college education, right? So that's a eight, it's an eight year uh, education. So this isn't just a college is education. This is high yeah, school. This is, and this is college. high school college, right? The um, or what it kind of what it should be. It's like that. That um, like puberty through the beginning of your career, or you know, or I mean, to, and you know, careers work funny. Most people switch multiple times throughout their lives, and you know, I've had a couple different careers now, and that's just how it works. But the. Uh, uh, but kind of that kickoff into adulthood from puberty to adulthood. That's, that's the, the time when you're 
laying the foundations of an education and the foundations of an education have to do with making you free to be a part of the great conversation of humanity. That that's what a liberal arts education is. What, uh, you know, this is why, this is why Burke talked about one of the things that is the right of a free man is leisure, right? Leisure to, to be a part of humanity. Mm. Right. And that's, um, and that's a distinctly Christian idea that that's for everyone. Wait, but there was, it's always, that's always been a part of the educational process, but it wasn't for everyone until Jesus came along and said, actually, we're all free. You, the, even a slave in Christ is free. The, the definition of a free man was flipped inside out and taken away from economics and get and made a soul word you know it's a it's a it has to do with the fundamental humanity and and that you want everybody a part of that freedom you know so um that idea was so revolutionary that it's i mean we're still kind of we we see how much that is resisted by tyrants you know tyrants don't want a well-educated populace. They don't want a population that knows their own story, that knows history, that knows um, philosophy, that knows theology. They 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 want a, a population that goes to that gets tech degrees, not with liberal arts education. They don't want they don't want people with free souls and free minds. They want people that can take up their position in the machine of culture or the machine of society, the machine of, of the governmental system. They want us to be thinking in terms like that, you know, what's my, what's my place in the system, um, in the, mm. in the machine, uh, so that be weak, you know, cause they, cause they think in, ter- they, they don't think in terms of individual souls. They think in, you know, that they think in terms of the giant machine, right? The economy, that sort of thing. That's why you can have people go around saying like the economy is doing great, even though all of the people are dying. <laughs> the you know the the people are starving. The people right. um, uh, don't have enough gas to get to work. Uh, they can't afford <laughs> it. And, but they're like, yeah, but the economy is doing well. I don't understand what's what's the problem. Look at the numbers. It's like that's not you know economy. Thinking of economy in as an abstract in the abstract, not as a collection of houses, which is economy means Mm -hmm. it's, it's the, it's the houses uh, gathered together, the households gathered together, uh, exchanging goods and services. That's what an economy is. As soon as you say you could, the economy is doing fine, but the people are starving. Then, you know, you're not thinking in terms of, humanity anymore you're thinking in terms of some sort of collective result and our metaphor system is machines and it's slowly becoming computers as well but we think people are machines people are the that the the government system is a machine and people are pieces cogs within the machine of the economy the machine of and and this is where it, it what's funny is that then you have the the argument being well is the machine the politics or is the machine the economy or is the machine some sort of 
political economy, right? And so if the machine is the politics, then you're a socialist. If the machine is the economy, then you're a communist. If the machine is the political economy, then you're a fascist. But they all agree on the collectivism, right? They right. agree on the... <laughs> the, well, the and Republicans metaphor system. The Republicans are falling right into that same reality mm-hmm. too. Is like, oh, it's just a machine, and if we just need to get power over, it, then we can control how it works, and we we can fix it. The machine, right? Uh, instead right. of saying, yeah. this is go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, and I, I mean, it's it, I, this has been. I think this is one of the central errors that we tend to make, right? And then when because when we then talk about you know, our souls, our humanity, you know, or we don't even talk about our humanity, but we talk about, you know, our souls or our spirit or our, um, you know, the health of our mind, you know, the um, mental health, all of those things have to do with abstracting and separating mental health from the, our Uh place in the machine. Right. And so you get this kind of ghost in the machine, uh, mentality where you're trying to take care of the ghost somehow, but it you have to do that by separating it out from the machine, which is either our bodies or society or our jobs or whatever the machine is. You get this ghost in the machine metaphor system that we think in, that we assume, that we communicate in, um, and it's really destructive. But we don't realize that it's a false metaphor system because everybody's using it. And so we we bring the we, we don't even have a way of communicating about what ought to happen or what we ought to be or what freedom really is or, you know, because we're functioning. We're, we think we're in a different poem than the one we're actually in. And I this is this is exactly how I've been feeling with. The things that we've been talking about and seem, I don't even know what to call it, the new education that I'm getting in our conversation is I'm realizing I'm starting to feel like a madman because I'm screaming, this is not normal. This is not human. <laughs> this is not the design. And everybody's looking around like, right. turn your cog, you big dummy, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm like, you know, and so I, the edge, I'm realizing that even the somewhat good education that I've gotten has been observing this machine, this operation instead of thinking, cause it's like, okay, how you get a job? How do you make money? How you provide for your family? And all those things are, are good, true and real, but those things are coming after the type of human you become. Right. Right. With those. Yeah, August, Augustine breaks it down into the four aspects of an education. And the, the fourth one is, uh, the, in you know ec- economic prosperity, right? So the ability to prosper economically in the world is it's a part of an education, but it's like the fourth part, right? It's the it's it's the the last thing because it's the it's the least um, it's it's the it's not the it's the not that it's the least difficult. It's the it's the least. E- not even eternal. It's just, it's sort of, it's just one part of it. It's not, it's not the, the heart of the education, right? A a person that learns who they are, who God is and what kind of place this is and where they fit, right? Which are the first aspects. 
then knows how to serve their neighbor and prosper economically, right? It's the thing that flows. It flows out of understanding who you are, who God is, what kind of world he made and how it fits together. Man, we got to beat that like a dead horse. Who, who you are, (laughs) right? Right. Who God is and the kind of world that we live, you know? And so, but because of that, you get this, what comes next is just the natural flow. That's what that fourth one is. It is, is a, it's just in the stream of the, it's downstream of those things, right? It just naturally, right. you fall right. into, which is, which is, mm. so here's, when I got, when I got these books, I started feeling really stupid. <laughs> I started feeling really dumb, I right? I know. That's the, and, that's the problem with reading. That's, that's a, <laughs> And I've, I think I've said this before, but you know, so when I started reading, I, I started feeling like, man, we don't, we don't know any, like we don't know anything. We have no, yeah. and it's, it's not like, oh, we, we are the most technologically advanced generation ever in mankind. And yet we are in the process of, we've completely deconstructing humanity. And so right. then I started thinking about things like, what James Cameron has did with his films to try and say, what does it look like when humans have forgotten their humanity and they've leaned now onto another form of, or another God to define for them their humanity and their help. Well, what you get is Terminator. Right. Yeah. You you get that culture, you get that world, you get Skynet, right? Which is, (laughs) which is a super scary kind of situation. So I was, I want to play this for you. This is kind of long, but I want to play this for you. So there's this um, clip I was looking at just kind of talking about like how, how dumb we are. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's Mark. I don't even know how to say his name, but uh, Mark Berlin, Berlin. And he's what like, I don't understand is how, can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How is it that on the 2001 NAEP history exam, of high school seniors chose Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, or Fascist Italy as our ally, Mm -hmm. not the Soviet Union. Digital culture uh, means, means this to most teenagers. It doesn't open them up to the great big world of ideas and artworks and, and, and documents and politics and foreign affairs, which is all out there on the internet. The potential is there. Instead, it gives them what teenagers really care about, other teenagers, mm-hmm. access to one another. They're not going to the Smithsonian Institution website. When Nielsen ratings uh, examine the most popular websites for young adults, nine out of the top 10, teenagers, nine out of the top 10 were for social networking. Mm-hmm. 55% of high school students spend less than one hour a week reading and studying for class. They spend nine hours a week social networking. And this, this is what brought me into this, yeah. th- this work, studies of leisure habits by, by young adults. And one thing we can say is that the leisure reading people do, young people do, the visits to museums mm-hmm. that they do, the library visits that they do, those have gone down. And that, that's just natural because the menu of leisure options for young, for teenagers and young adults has gotten bigger. Reading is, 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 has a smaller portion on the menu. Mm-hmm. 
that they have. And when you go into the average 15-year-old's bedroom now, it's a multimedia center. Yeah, there are a few books up there on the shelf. There's the laptop, the cell phone, video game console, Blackberry, iPod, and all those diversions give them something a lot more compelling mm-hmm. than the story of Antony and Cleopatra right. and Caesar. Okay, so this is 13 years ago, bro. Oh, uh, that's what I was going to ask when that was because he said Blackberry. And you see MySpace is up there. Yeah, yeah, you got MySpace yeah. up there and the whole night. This is 13 years ago. And this, is, this video goes on long. And he starts going on basically to describe that the fact that people are reading, but they're reading inside of their own peer bubble, right? So one of yeah. the things that social media has given us, I don't care who you are, um, social media is giving you a a, a a a chamber of your own voice that bounces back to you. And so whatever you want, right. whatever you engage in, it is just sending all that content right back to you. So you can be like, yeah, my thoughts are out there and I'm in the right vein of things. But when you go and you start reading yesteryear's books, it's realigning the whole world for you in a different culture, in a different time, in a different era. Um, it, it, it makes your brain, it gets you out of your own echo chamber, you know? Right. And part of what happened when I saw with 2020, that, you know, I always knew there was an echo chamber, but then I saw just how massive that echo chamber was. Not just on the left, but on our side too. I wasn't yeah. finding anybody yeah. really in my circle that really disagreed with me. I, I, everybody really liked what I had to say. And I'm like, wait a second, this isn't right. So I had to go and find, like, how do I get out of this echo chamber? And, and books don't have the same algorithm and luxury that uh, social media and digital platforms have. It's not going to build it towards you. It's going to be what it is. And it's, it's steel. It's not moving. It's wooden, right? Right. Unlike the current situation that we have now with social media, it'll move and manipulate. It's like water. It'll mold and find the people that, you know, and I just, I just thought like, so even if he, even if Mark is right that, Hey, we have way too much social media engagement. Um, and so we're losing out on, um, broad, the, the, the conversation culturally, if they did decide to get the education that he wants them to have, they still would be missing out on the broader, larger form of the conversation because of the type of education yeah. that they're getting. Right, right. Yeah, because just going to a museum doesn't suddenly it make you a part of the conversation. You have to have other people that also have the education to be talking to. And right. that is almost unavailable. I and mean, what's crazy is now the possibilities of conversation are amazing I can, right. Right, I can have conversations with people all over the world um you know i was i, I was reading uh i got a new uh, book recently a uh, fairly obscure book of older poetry and the person that wrote the introduction um i saw was a was a, a professor in london and i went on twitter and found her handle and was able to message her with a question that I had about this book of poetry. Right. And she's one of the world experts on Charles Williams who wrote the poem. And, um, and I thought, man, the, the ability to communicate is there. 
people just don't know the terms of the conversation. And so they don't, they don't know. There's no on ramps. There's very few recognizable on ramps to people into the conversation. Cause they don't know mm-hmm. it's been going on for thousands of years. And, and, and they don't understand the humanizing effect because they don't, they've never experienced it. I mean, that's what, that's how most of us are. We've not experienced what it is to actually be educated about anything, right? We, um, we bounce through, um, you know, half formed thoughts. Uh, we, we mm. incomplete sentences and, and thing, and then, and form opinions and think that our opinions are of value because we put them out there and we get likes, you know, they, they took the dislike button away from Twitter right. because they realized it was, hindering the kind of conversation that you can actually have on Twitter. Um, you must be reading my, so, my monologues. Is that what you're talking about? Half done sentences and making, <laughs> uh, you know, you're right about that though. That's one of the, I mean, yeah. So the thing that's the thing that I'm noticing is that, okay. So the, the importance of education is essential. Um, the, the kind of, we don't get freedom apart from that. Um, this part of the Great Commission is go make disciples of baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded, right? And and right. so, there, you know, there is a need for regenerated folks to be educated, <laughs> right? And, and, and right. that perpetuates, it teaches you to walk in the, the um, walk properly in the call that God has given to you so much, you know, that you are properly acknowledging your gratefulness for the work of Christ through, um, obeying the education that you've been given. Right. So you can, right. you, you can be regenerated and you need to have an education. Say, how do I live now? How do I walk now? How do I observe now? You know? Yeah. Well, and even the, the studies on literacy. So to be able to read the Bible, you have to be literate. And um, mm. the the studies on literacy and one of the main people that has studied literacy is uh, the Bible translator. I can't remember. There, there's Wycliffe Bible translators. Then there's one other major Bible. But they've both done studies in literacy because they realized even getting the Bible into people's language, where they, they were getting the New Testament into people's language and then they would you know start introducing it while they worked on the old Testament and they realized that the people weren't literate enough to receive it. And so then they would um, go and teach language lessons, reading lessons. And they would, and they realized that you actually can't be literate unless you're familiar. I think it was 30 books was the minimum, right? Unless you were conversant in 30 books, you couldn't read the Bible. Right. And so they realize we, it's not enough to just translate the Bible. So now if they get a language, um, it, you know, as they're developing written languages, they get a series of books that they put into the language, not never, never just the Bible, because you need a certain number of books. Even to read the Bible, you have to be conversant in other books besides just the Bible. Now, there's because the Bible is actually a library of 66 books. There's 
um, it it's one of the most helpful things when it comes to literacy because you've got every different kind of literature in there. You've got the the broadness and the breadth and the depth and then the interactiveness within the texts that encourage literacy. You know, I, I remember, you know, I'd, I'd taken Greek and then Bible and all things. And when I entered my, to, and I, I started college a little bit later in life, you know, jumped in, I was 24, I think when I finally jumped into college and, um, and so the, uh, jumped into a philosophy degree and my, I had a professor say, you know, this was in, in, um, confidence, you know, it was when I was getting ready to graduate, but he said, I started to realize early on in my career that I could tell if it was going to be a good class or a bad class based on the number of Christians that were in it because mm. Christians are the only ones left that know how to, how to submit themselves to a text. Because <laughs> mm. of exegesis. And I was, yeah. He's not a Christian, not a Christian philosophy professor. He is a Stan, you know, Stanford professor of philosophy. He just, and he just said, but the, the, it's about entering into this conversation and you're, no matter what you're studying in philosophy, you're stepping into the, into a conversation that's already going, right? So you have, before you can actually enter the conversation with any sort of intelligence, you have to first submit yourself to a text, come to understand it, understand it, where it is in the conversation, understand who he's arguing with, who, what he's arguing for. And then you can enter into the conversation mm. with some sort of intelligence and add to the conversation. We've all seen people that don't listen well, but they jump into the conversation anyway. You, know, you talk to somebody who doesn't let you finish sentences, but then responds um, that, and you realize, no, you're, that's not a conversation that you're not getting anywhere with that person that, um, I mean, we, we are that generation. That's who we, we are. are that generation. Right. <clears throat> well, and, he, and he, so he, he's, he'd been teaching for a long time and he just said, Christians know how to, that right they know how to honor a text come to understand what it actually means before you interact with it and so he would and i mean it was a, the when i was a philosophy major is a is a medium-sized school of philosophy there were four christians you know myself one other reform guy an evangelical guy and a roman catholic and it was I mean, it was really interesting we go out for lunch and we would argue about theology and argue about Calvinism and Arminianism and sources of authority and the Pope and Mary and all sorts of things. And then we get into class and it was so obvious that it was us versus everybody else that, that it was like, yeah. Okay. Here we are here. We're actually all the same. I get that we're different, right. but in that setting, you know, you've got, um, atheists and agnostics, a lot of, you know, Nietzscheans and, um, people that get really into Eastern philosophy and all sorts of th things. <laughs> and all of a sudden the difference between an Arminian and a Calvinist look really small. Like, yeah. All right, brother, let's link our arms and go to war. Yep. <laughs> When, when that's I think I think we're back I think that's when you know you're in the trenches right like you know you're in the trenches when like you have to have Catholics with 
<laughs> and you're like, eh. or I, like the 2020, I knew we were in the trenches when Cares Matters were the one leading the charge. I was like, oh, great. You know, <laughs> so, so grateful for them. But I'm like, right, right. That, that was just a testimony to like all these reform folks ain't got no backbone. Like the charismatics were the one leading the charge. <laughs> right, right. So here's here's right. here's part. And, Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, and and that's you know that that kind of fire um, is when the the Lord sends it, it's a blessing. Mm. And you just say, oh, okay. Now we we have you look around and you say, okay, here we here's the group of people that stood uh, under the pressure. Um, that's good. That's good to know. You know, these are the guys that, that are going to be here. You know, when, when we go to the, if we go to the stake, you, those are the guys you want, um, to know where they are. So you can link arms and be ready. Here's, here's what's really getting at me right now. I was watching a documentary. This goes back to our education stuff. Um, I was watching a documentary on nine 11, um, I believe that it's on Hulu. It's called a day um, in American history, nine 11, a day in American history. And the, this is the most brutal documentary I've ever watched before in my life. Most brutal documentary ever. It's the best documentary probably too, because it's all true, but it's along with the nine 11 museum. They did it. It is brutal. I literally had to stop watching because I was dehydrated because my eyes were leaking so much. So I couldn't finish Wow! past the second uh, episode and I was watching some of this with my kids and we were just they were watching daddy ball because it was crazy so it's an amazing documentary what I realized though in watching that documentary the firefighters that came to the towers while it was still up I've said this on the show but they were different type of men a different type of guys they they were of a different era where I, w- I said that um, on the show that they probably wouldn't be welcome inside of the social justice culture that we currently have right now. They probably had some racial slurs and said some <clears throat> weird things that, and you know, we would probably be like, yeah, you can't talk like that. You can't engage. But these were the kind of men that when the rubber meets the road, they climb the towers and they save you. Right. Like that's kind of man that these guys were. And, and so I, I just was watching that. I was like, man, I don't think that we have, I don't think that we're making those type of human beings anymore. So after watching the whole, as much as I could watch of the documentary <laughs> um, and observing the kind of men that those guys were versus the kind of men that we currently have, even watching what happened in Uvalde, it's kind of proving the point. But yeah. the thing that has, I'm watching not only those things when it comes to moments of bravery, but I'm watching the kind of things that we're creating and the way that we're trying to push them on everyone else. We're not the way our education is now. We don't we don't build things that have substantial value for our neighbor. We build things that are almost like clickbait. They have to have it. They get it. And it never lives up to the reality of what it is that they get. Right. And that's and the edu- and, and that's not an accident. I think you have to trace that all the way back to the type of education that people are getting because when you look at the fruit of something, we, we talked to Yuren, Yuren Hazani, and he, he said he thought that everything that we're facing in the culture right now comes back to um, 
the education that we started getting in government schools, right? And I think he's right about that. If you want right. to see the fruit of something, all you have to do is look at the kind of education that people had, and then you just wait a few years and say, well, what do they build with that type of education? Because that's going to tell you the value and the beauty and the substance of what type of education those people had. You know, we were talking, to, you, you, you mentioned the war, the, you know, we're talking a lot about World War I, World War II, and you look at the change in architecture. I mean, literally, the, the way things changed in terms of what we, what we built architecturally, and it's, it's incredible to have the sudden shift in architecture that World War I in Europe and World War II in America brought about. Um, government building that people right, that that there was something that the, that happened that caused us to to literally change the kind of building that we built for um the that <coughs> that kind of change in the belief about what kind of world we lived in to build new kinds of buildings that didn't that no that people would have laughed out of the uh, out of the room, you know, 20 years earlier, suddenly are the ones that are winning the giant government contracts and the university contracts. You know, you look at old universities and what they built versus new university buildings. And, um, and you realize yeah, something has changed because the, the, uh, what we build is so different, you know, Right. Not just the people, the physical spaces that we build. And I mean, and our architecture is is the externalization of our cosmology. Right. That's what architecture. That's what architecture is. You, you um, it's it's cosmology in stone. It's um, mm. or in you know steel and cement if it's a modernist building. So. Um, it tells us what kind of cre- creature we think we are, um, what kind of work we think we're doing, what kind of world we think we live in when we every every time a new building is built. And modernist architecture is is a result of the modernist worldview, right? It's a result of the modernist cosmology, the modernist uh modernist philosophy it it's it's the, the it's gnosticism i mean modern architecture is is gnosticism in stone so um it, the should means something what worked that out for me when you say uh, it's cosmology in stone what do you mean um well so modern architecture really grew out of a um it, this it was a movement that started in Germany and and in Italy as well during like Italy during the fashion as fascism was on the rise um, and Germany as Nazism was on the rise you had um, a number of architectural movements mo- modernism the Bauhaus movement Italian futurist movement uh, the minimalist movement brutalism the, all these different architectural movements that now we see the results of all over the place. Um, and what it was, was they, it was a change in the way that people, in the kind of creature that people thought 
they were building for. Mm. Right? So um, you had uh, in the Middle Ages, they thought that they were building for human beings made in the image of God who had a series of different responsibilities and and you know jobs to do with their life on behalf of God. Right. They were God's representative on the earth. And so you built them a particular kind of building. You built houses for them um, that they that they could raise families in. That was the purpose of the house was to raise kids to enjoy for husbands and wives to enjoy one another and have fellowship and communion. Right. Well, you get to the Bauhaus movement, um, the the brute and you know, brutalism and minimalism, which were these, they, they said, well, what do we need? We need worker housing for the newly emerging modern man, which, and, um, Gropius called modern man, a sexually liberated social monad. Um, (laughs) that was, he said that's, so that's, if that's what you're building houses for, if that's what you're building space for uh, a sexually liberated social monad, um, then you're going to build, you're not going to build single family dwellings where you have uh, a, a bedroom for the husband and wife, and then a bunch of small bedrooms for the kids and uh, a living room with, that was designed to have a library and a kitchen and table that were designed for, feeding and fellowshipping around, right? That's, you know, if you, uh, instead he built the Chicago projects, right? That's what he was the designer of the Chicago projects, wow. right? the Philadelphia projects, right? He built the projects and he said what we, what, what he was hoping to do was to, so they knocked down oh, and the government paid for all this. They knocked down the entire neighborhoods of single family houses that were f- filled with the, um, Black families, Latino families, um, you know, and they and in their place they put these giant what they called worker housing. Um, but then they realized they weren't that when they called it worker housing in America, the People's Communists alarms went off, and so they stopped. So they started calling it. Um, uh, they started calling it affordable housing. Affordable housing. I know that term. <laughs> so, oh, I know that term. Affordable, affordable housing. housing. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> right. And and um, it was blocks, you know, square cubes um, that were all the same. Every every bed was the same. Everything was the same. And he said because if you uh, the that if we are going to get bring these people into the new phase of the evolution of the soul uh, or the uh, of the the psyche of mankind, right, which is just Gnostic terminology, then we need to break down the the um, traditional their connection to history. And their connection to a time and a place. Okay. Right. Okay. uh, You you got, you got to pause real quick. I want, don't, don't forget that. I just got to say this. It, it, It didn't just happen to the ghettos, right? It didn't just happen. Suburbs got the same treatment, right? They just were better looking, but it was exact. There's a song. uh, Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah. Eventually, right. Yeah. Eventually it bled out. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It bled out to everywhere, right? So the um, but they so they they were cement. They um, they they wanted uh, they called them machines for living, uh, m- machines for living in, 
for living machines. Oh. Right. So, so the idea was that they were basically factory built. Everybody got the same thing. And if that way, if you were walking home and um, you would stop thinking, Oh, I've got to turn into this apartment because this one has my family in it. You could just turn into any apartment because every apartment was exactly the same. So the whole the apartment complex of exactly the same everything was his goal. Um, and he was a you know, the the this whole movement was um, you know they like we we like to think that the transgender stuff is brand new and they. Everybody in these movements, you know, they all got the same haircut. They all got they they would um, dress the men like women and the women like men. They would, you know, it was they were while designing these buildings. Right? It was it was a very straight, and you you'll see, um, you know, if, if you bounce around on the internet looking for evidence of it, the evidence is all there. The problem is everybody's celebrating it. They're like, look, wow. these they were way ahead of their day because they were transgender and they were um they they were breaking down all of the taboos or the you know so they would spend the morning breaking down taboos um and then spend the afternoon designing buildings for workers and for the That's uh, critical theory government buildings and it really is. So it's it, the modernist architecture is just sort of critical theory um that that dissolved the the idea that we needed to dissolve the connection um, for for the for modern man to emerge into its next phase of of psychic evolution or you know the evolution of the psyche of modern man that you needed to separate the masses from everything that gave them an identity right their history their family their people group, you know, um, so they, so they, there was no decorations, no anything like that. Cause it was all just about function. Functionalism was one of the, the big movements, um, you know, the Italian futurists. So that was coming out of Germany and Italy. So, and Nazism was on the rise there in Italy where you had, um, the, uh, fascism on the rise, the Italian futurist architecture movement, which has also been really, really influential, was growing and blossoming. And it, its whole thing was that the that the function, the, the, the function was the place where the beauty was. Right. So there was no decorations added instead you didn't finish the walls and you let the pipes show and that was the decoration you didn't put up you 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 didn't finish the walls on the inside you let the bricks show and the brick was the decoration and now Mm. now because the because of the way god built the world and the way physics works and you know you actually end up with some beautiful italian futurist buildings because to get pipes to work properly, according to the way God worked, you end up with decorative looking things, right? You look, end up with beautiful lines and trying to get the water to flow and water flows along lines that turn out to also be aesthetically pleasing, but they were purposefully trying to undermine the aesthetics of the Christendom, the aesthetic, you know, the, the idea that you could have um, a, 
a unity and diversity within a building that was built to human scale for human purposes and um, that would become the kind of place that people wanted to be in uh, because it was both beautiful and comfortable. They were like, no, that's that that's a different view of mankind. That's a different anthropology, a different definition of humanity. We believe they believed that people were machines. And so um, you didn't to, to decorate for a machine didn't make any sense. And it gave people a false sense of identity um, to have decorations. They needed to understand their function and their place in society, they were a cog, right? The thing is, nobody wanted to live in any of these places. They ended up knocking down many of these, the buildings um, because they just became places filled with crime, right? Places filled with just all that you had left were crack dealers and prostitutes and, uh, and, 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 And we don't look back and say, well, maybe we made a mistake (laughs) and we shouldn't have knocked down those neighborhoods, right? We say, you know, let's throw another hundred million (laughs) dollars at it and build a new set of projects. Hey, hey, let's not, let's not treat them like people. Let's continue our social experimentation. And this time let's call them lofts. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is, um, So the whole idea of worker housing, lofts were a big part of it. The only people that could ever afford it, though, were the ultra rich. I mean, I remember growing up in the 80s thinking, you know, if if you ever make enough money, then you get to move into a a, a, a loft. And now I'm like, okay, you know, that literally is the um, I mean, they, they, they would build these worker housing um, things, you know, and then the chairs were all like five thousand dollars because. <laughs> They were, they, you know, they, the, the way they had to be built. And so the only people that could ever afford to ever put up any of the modernist architecture were governments, right, who have guns that can take away people's taxes. Um, you know, nobody would pay for these on purpose unless they were under compulsion, right? So you had all, so you had universities and, uh, wow. and governments that paid for all of this. And then, and here's what's crazy um, so you had things, you know, yeah, you had like purism was one of the movements um, where it, it, they, they would say it is all has to do with the vision of the architect, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the person that's paying for it gets no say. So they would only take a job if they were given complete freedom. But then they didn't take into account the people that were actually going <laughs> to use or live in any of these buildings. Right. So, uh, which is a, you know, they were the Gnostic guru with the special knowledge about the next uh, phase of the psychic evolution of man. And they were going to bring it into a, a being by force. And that's why they needed government funds. That's why it's government buildings that are ugly. That's why it's state university buildings that are ugly, right? Because those, that is money gathered by force. Um, and so you, you you go get an because nobody's going to hire an architect who says I'm a part of the brutalist movement, for example, right? To build your house for you, right? Uh, that that's something that only a government would ever think was a good idea. Right, so the um, yeah the 
the uh, yeah, and then you had things like functionalism, which built everything had to have a flat roof, and it didn't matter where you were, and so you'd have all, all these buildings with flat roofs. The Minneapolis projects, I believe, it was the Minneapolis projects that they built with flat roofs. Which, if you know anything about Minnesota, you know that you're going to get a bunch of snow up there, and it's going to melt. And that's the least fun. The flat roof is the least functional roof you could possibly put in. But that's what that's what they did. So, but then eventually, once once these government projects, um, you know, m- normalized modernist architecture, uh, you started getting uh, skyscrapers built in a modernist style. They're just steel beams and glass, you know, all the way up. Um, you, you, that no longer um, that that are in that purest style that says, what's this for? This is a giant building for um, office workers. And so it can't have anything that makes it nice or beautiful or pretty. It has to just be functional, period. And so you get skyscrapers, which are, you know, our cathedrals, right? They're, they're, those are our our generations, our society's cathedrals they're the ones that are built um they, they stand out they form the skyline they define a city uh they, they tell us what that city's for and it, it turns out that economic machinery is the only thing we're willing to build a cathedral to so well, yeah when you walk inside of them one of the things you do you look up just to see how transcendent it's supposed to look right like and how small right. you are in the environment and how big the building is so you that's what cathedrals are supposed to do is it remind you of who god was who you were right. and the type of world you live in right and so now the modern form of cathedral there is no god you aren't yep. really important at all and we're in charge. <laughs> right. You know, but, but the thing is, is we, we believe that you, I mean, you, so if you ask somebody to imagine, you know, picture the picture, the earth, mm. they're going to picture the earth from a place that they have never been. Right. They're going to picture the earth from space. They're going to picture that's you say picture the earth to people they don't go out and touch to think okay well i'm picturing the ground oh wow yeah in my backyard i'm picturing the ground on my farm i'm picturing you know they're gonna picture the earth from a perspective that they have never actually experienced they're gonna picture it from an astronaut's perspective or from outer space right and um even the fact that we call it space um, we call it tells us what we think, what kind of universe we think we live in, right? We, our imagination is filled with a cosmology, a universe, a a universal picture, an imaginative picture that is mostly empty, dark, cold, destructive. And, you know, if you, if you ever got there, it would kill you. Yeah. Yeah. Random. Right. Um, And so, a skyscraper is actually not a bad picture of that universe of in of you know holding back the the chaos of that universe with the strength of steel the strength of glass the strength of steel beams you know that and that that that's what it takes um we don't believe that this universe is a cathedral and so we don't build cathedrals 
or we don't believe that this universe is um, a, a a place of of integrated unity of beauty uh, that is designed to be filled with music, and so we don't build acoustically sound buildings. We, it, we the the kind of universe we believe we live in will define what kind of cathedrals we build what and what we build cathedrals to for and and how we design them right so in the, in, you know in, in the medieval world where they built the greatest buildings ever right, the cathedrals um the they believed that god had built a cathedral and that they were living in it right they they were and that the earth was at the bottom. It wasn't anywhere near the spires and the beautiful, the best places of the cathedral. The earth was sort of the, the, um, the spent at the bottom of the cathedral. But when they looked up, they imagined that their imagination was filled with an understanding of the cosmos, that it was bright. It was full of music. It was full of liturgical movement and dance and, uh, so that they um, and it was a unified whole, right? That all of the diversity that filled the universe um, actually fit together into a unified whole as a universe. Um, and the orbits all worked together. Um, the, every, the everything was in motion, but it was in motion in a unified way. Harmony, not in a random way. Harmony. Yeah, yeah it was filled with harmony. Um, and so they built, uh, they built buildings that were filled with diversity and harmony, or, um, the, a unified whole that was diverse, harmonious, had all sorts of small details, but then you could step back and see that the small details fit into a larger whole, um, that they would give an architect the freedom to build one of the, to, to build one of the corners and they got to put in whatever they wanted. You know, they put in a sculpture, they could put in a carving, they could put in whatever they wanted. Um, and, but knowing that that then would be a part of a larger whole, uh, and, but individuals got to put their mark on it because that was the kind of universe we lived in where individuals had a place that they fit, um, that they, uh, Walter or, or, uh, he was a Walter Gropius Gropius. Uh, he had this manifesto about the move, the change to modern architecture. And while he was writing it, uh, he wrote a friend and he said something along the lines of my life is, sus- uh, is suspended in thin air, uh, like Muhammad's coffin, right? The, he, he felt like a ghost and he just admitted it, right? He's like, I feel like a ghost that doesn't touch the earth. I, that my that I, you know I live somewhere halfway there. I can't find my way down, but I can't find my way up. And he's, and he's the one, <coughs> he's the one that wrote the defining manifesto on modern architecture. Yikes! Um, that uh. yeah, right. You know, so um, and I mean the fact that they're having to write manifestos on architecture. Um, the, the people pe- there are people that win architecture awards now that never build a building. You know, they they build they draw drawings it's of in their head. And they win architecture awards. Yeah, it's all in their head. Um, the the uh, the the uh, the the take on what a building is for has been changed so completely 
be, um, because what kind of world we live in and what kind of creature we're building buildings for that has shifted and changed what we believe about that. Okay. So, I mean, this is why we build such terrible churches now, but okay, we'll get there. We build ugly buildings. (laughs) No, I just, let me process all this real quick. Okay. Okay. Because, you know, when I talk to you, especially start talking about metaphysics and Gnosticism, which is still the conversation we're having right now. I start realizing that I really didn't know what Christianity was. Um, <laughs> and it's been two weeks since I talked to you. And, you know, I'd like to think that we're making some headway. I'm getting a little further along. I'm understanding a little more. Now I go into my own house and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, the problem's worse than I thought. <laughs> because now I'm thinking about all the structures that I'm in. And I'm thinking about all of the plate, the pers- place that I work, the structure that I live, the environment that I go to worship. And I'm saying, oh, my goodness. The problem is worse. It's manifesting itself. This is what I was talking about with the firefighters and the education. It's our yeah. understanding of the cosmos, our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves is so messed up that we are creating this reciprocal so when they made those ghettos whatever humanity was in those people the structure seared it out right so that they begin to live and function in a way that wasn't tangible in reality so they became square little boxes you know and and we got there first by the type of mentality and understanding of the world that we have and then Mm -hmm. we built structures like that and then whatever, so nature, <clears throat> this is why I think the future belongs to, I'm, I'm, this is going to just blah out, okay? I think yeah. the future of the world belongs to blue-collar craftsmen who have classical educations. And the reason that I'm mm-hmm. making it very much blue-collar is because they are the ones who are working with physical, tangible items still. They are working with wood. They are working with metals. They are working with plastics. They're working with things that still touch down on earth and they have to build from them. And so it only makes sense that things work a particular kind of way because if you work in any kind of other way, it doesn't, we can't make the product that we need to work. So guys who are carpenters and guys who are uh, mechanics and, 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 and electricians and, and these people, they still have a very tangible reality of how the world works just in the way that they do their jobs every day. But if they don't have the education that informs their work, then they're in trouble. But the ones who do understand, well, you got to build like this. And if that's true about construction and uh, framing, it must be true about people. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're, they're, so, they're, they're always so malleable. So those kind of folks say, I don't care what you do. Um, a piece of wood is only going to bend so much before it breaks. And I don't care what you try and say. A man is never going to be a woman and a woman can't right. ever be a man because the world isn't designed like that. But <clears throat> I'm starting to see that every, those kind of people I think will hold the future, but the ones who are living in these structures that they aren't paying attention to that they're not aware of are being formed and instructed to act in the world a particular type of way and not even knowing that it's happening to them 
And so I, you know, I was fine understanding like, okay, you know, if we can change some people's minds and concepts about Gnosticism and just getting them back to understanding how the world were good. But we have a fight on our hands because the very environment that we're in, um, you go downtown, any major city and you lose the skyline, you lose grass, you lose trees and it's all fake, right? It's just iron. And there's, and it's amazing living out here in the Northwest I see hills and mountains and terrain and natural beauty. And it's like, how do we, how do we put that into what we do? And, you know, it's just complete, it's a completely different attitude when I walk outside in Minneapolis downtown and there's cars bustling by and there's no trees except for where they decide to plant them. And, you know, and they're making this fake garden and they're not building it like a, a real garden. And I, look, I'm grateful for all that, but there is a form and a function to that that's different than actual created order. And I'm like, oh my goodness, we have our work cut out for us even more than I thought. Right. You know? And so, yeah, go ahead. This is why it it isn't a, isn't something that we fix in our generation. We can't think I've got to fix this now. Because this is, like, I, I was, I was just talking to my wife about this because, you know, I'm reading up on, on architecture and I was, you know, reading about church architecture and and you know seeing the connection between the cosm the cosmology of my favorite poets and then the buildings that are built in their day and. We're talking about it, and she and and you know she said something like, "And you know how people think you fix it, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, they think we go out and we got to build a the a, a building like the medieval cathedrals, and then we've got it fixed." Yeah, that's right, <laughs> right, right. It's like, yeah, but that's not. We literally we can't. It wouldn't, and if we did, let's say we did get one built, it would be a. It, it wouldn't people wouldn't know what to do with it. People wouldn't know how to deal with it. Right. It, mm. you, the, it wouldn't it wouldn't work because people don't believe God don't believe the church is God's cathedral or right? they don't believe God is building a cathedral. And so they don't want to put the church into one. Right. We would we would end up building a um, a basketball court next to it and worshiping there instead because we wouldn't be we wouldn't we wouldn't feel like we fit into it. Oh my goodness. Um, That's exactly it, it, what my old Presbyterian church did. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. Exactly. What they but it's, did. A, it's a, it's a, <laughs> but it's, it's a, it's a fittingness issue, right? We, if you don't, if you, if you look at the history of the church and you, you see the ecclesiology, uh, not, you know, not, not talking high middle ages, Right in the sense when the when the medieval church was at its most healthy, um, the 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 ecclesiology believed that God was in the process of building a spiritual cathedral, and so they started building cathedrals because that seemed like the place you would put a spiritual cathedral, right? And and what I mean by that is that there was plenty of Play, there was space within the church for all kinds of different people. There was, uh, you, you had, 
um, you know, you, you might have your, you, you might have a, um, you know, let's say you're in Spain, you might have a pastor, um, for, you know, in your local congregation that studied theology in Italy, grew, you know, it grew up in Africa, studied theology in Italy, and now is in a small town in Spain pastoring, right? That it was much more cosmopolitan, international. The church was expected to be international. Um, they had a universal language that the pastors could all communicate in, uh, and so you could have you, you could have a German pastor and an African pastor and a pastor from England all um, you know working, working together in a cathedral, and they all just spoke Latin with one another. And um, the expectation was that you had a much broader. And then on top of that, you know, you have you have let's you have people studying at different theological. Um, uh, theological seminaries. I mean, they weren't called seminaries yet, but they're different schools of theology that that learned different, um, you know, theological lingos, theological, uh, and and then would talk about it. Right? They didn't excommunicate one another. They would they they expected other places to have a different take theologically. Um, not on fundamentals, right? Not, but, but you're, you're, that the, they would bring something that maybe you hadn't thought of, right? And you would bring something that they hadn't thought of because they were raised in a, speaking a different language. And so they were going to bring a different perspective with them. Um, and that that was actually, and, and then you got into conversation with them. And that was how you, um, a, oh, you know, over something like the, oh, you know, over or under maybe something like the Nicene Creed. How do you understand this section of the Nicene Creed? How do you see it working out in in the life of the church? How do you understand the working out of the this aspect of the Nicene Creed in the life of the church? And that they would get into conversation expecting to learn from one another because there was that broad cosmopolitan, multilingual, multicultural aspect of the church and that the church was the place that was cosmopolitan, right? That was where you expected it because God was building something spiritually equivalent to a cathedral right? all throughout the whole world. And so then you say, well, where do you put that kind of spiritual people? Well, you put them in a cathedral that reflects that we have we're broken up into a bunch of tiny denominations that are not in communication with one another that do not benefit from one another's theologians that do not benefit from one another's uh, as, as interlocutors, as conversation partners, as debate partners. And, um, and what makes the difference? How do we define strong versus weak denominations? Generally speaking, right? Numbers and money. Right. And so mm. we build, we build buildings that reflect the kind of thing that we think the church is. So we build cheap buildings. Um, we, 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 you know, whenever you go into questions of raising funds from, for a new building, there's always people that complain about it's too expensive. You know, people didn't complain that building cathedrals were too expensive. They, they worked on it there in the afternoons after they got off work. Um, 
because they knew that that was the, the, I mean, some of these, the, the middle ages was especially that, that right towards the end of the high, the, of the middle ages leading into the high middle ages. It was an incredibly prosperous time um, for Europe. Europe was um, a combination of the, you know, the, the technology that was, um, so when a new farm implement, a new farm technology was developed, it basically sp- would immediately spread throughout all of Europe because of the communication of the churches. Mm. Right. So, uh, because, so you, you know, you have the, the steel tipped or the uh, iron tipped pl- plow, ends up everywhere in Europe because of the monastic system. So somebody invents it and then the monasteries immediately communicate to one another, Hey, check out this cool new technology, this farming technology. They right? posted it they to the monastery. <laughs> like there was a Facebook. Yeah, they exactly right. Like Facebook. Um, and so because of the interconnectedness that Christendom brought to Europe, you had technological advances at, rates that hadn't been seen ever in the world be, because of the, the peaceful communication and because of the lack of rivalry. Right. So I didn't, it, I could be, um, I might be a monk in England. Um, but you know, maybe I grew up in France or I grew up in Spain and, but my brother monk in Germany is not my rival. And so if I've got something that will bless him, I'm obligated by the law of love to share it. You didn't have that in the ancient world. If you had, if you could had better farming equipment, you didn't share it because that person might turn out. Yeah. You might end up at war with that right. person, right? So you don't have that same sort of. Can I just of, hit pause you know, right there, real quick? I see the same thing right now in the Christian body, where if somebody has an advantage or they have been. Um, they can see things really well with social media or algorithms or whatever or they have an audience of a nice size. I've seen people hoard to themselves certain things because they don't want to have the competition in the market. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, and maybe I do it so much to a hurt, but I refuse to think that this is a kind of, if we're building the kingdom of God, we're building the kingdom of God, then I can only build so much (laughs) where I'm at. And right, I need people right. on the other walls and other places to build and to grow. And so I don't have, if God has given me some sort of information or knowledge of how something works and how to be effective to withhold it from my brother is only a pride issue. Right. And it stops the advancement of the kingdom of God going forth. Shame on us. Shame right. on us. When it, I mean, there's it depending on the, there's a, a generosity of spirit that God works Amen. into his people. Yeah. Right. That because he's been so generous with us and that doesn't mean that somebody shouldn't be able to profit off of a, something they invented, right. That they, you know, that all of that um, is the, uh, you know, um, the profit off of inventions means you get more inventions, right. right. You, the, 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 uh, that's a, um, you know, you, it's the same with if somebody is getting paid for their art, you end up with more art. And so that's, you know, uh, um, my, my wife and I committed really early in our marriage to, to buying 
art from artists directly to put on our walls. Right. And so, you know, sculpture and paintings and prints, we do a lot, not uh, woodcut prints, you know, um, and it's because we want a world in which artists where there's more art. Right. And so rather than buying art from Target, we have we've committed to and it's taken a long time to fill our walls. That meant. Um, but it's the kind of world we want to live in. And so we buy art. We you know, we we go out and purposefully go to art shows with money, planning on buying art, even when we didn't have much. We've we've always done that. Um, but it's because we that's the kind of world that you live in. You, you live in the kind of world that you pay for. Um, and, and, uh, that's a, uh, you know, it's the same with, with poetry, with, you know, when you see young artists that are, um, you know, uh, that are trying to get started, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stop at <laughs> all of the street musicians and if they're selling CDs or whatever, buy them. And my wife, it might used to drive my wife nuts, but I was like, well, yeah, but this, what kind of world do you want to live in? Right. <laughs> She's like, yeah, we, but we were, we were on our way someplace. I was like, yeah, but I want a world where we've got street musicians on every corner. Yeah. Right? I, I want a world filled with music in that way. And so um, I promote you know, that. I stop and listen. And, yeah. Promote it. Right. So what, um, and to think, am I, um, what kind of world am I buying with my money is, I think is what God expects for of us. Um, and that, and then you realize, well, God, you know, look how generous God has been. What do I need to, what do I need to be afraid of? What do I need to hold? Why do I need to hold back? What, you know, I mean, Can't, conservatives are the worst about not being about the, not reinvesting their money into building a, a world that they want. Yoram Kazani was, his book was on re, uh, rescuing conservatism or re, um, reimagining and rediscovering, rediscovering conservatism. Okay. And, it was. I think he's a part of the Edmund Burke Foundation or something like that, and it it was amazing because there's an Edmund Burke Foundation. I need to get that. Yeah. Information. <laughs> I know. I want to hit this. Um, as you're talking, I, and you're talking about cathedral. I, I think it follows in the flow of God made a universe, and he's he's building his cathedral, and he's inviting man to model him in that. And I, and I can't help but think that there's, um, I mean, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. I, I keep, I think about the cathedral of the church, right? That that's a cathedral there. And I think about the cathedral of the home. Is that a right way to say that maybe? Um, well, or, the, yeah. May, or just the, what, what is a family, right? What's a family, what's a home for, and what what does God say that it is? And then how do you build the right kind of building for that? That's so th that's what and that's what I want to get to, because I the cathedral of the home. But like what type of so what kind of building do our homes need to be? Because I don't think that as we go forth and, and we I want to see a full reformation come all the way through. Right. I want to go all the way to the civil magistrate, <clears throat> all the way up to I want to see it come in our churches. I want to see the whole nine. I think a lot of it's going to have to start with our homes, uh, individuals first, and we're going to have to see individuals build the kind of homes that um, model the type of people that go out into uh, these other spheres and operate, right? 
um, a court, and I'm not leaving out the influence of the the teaching, the preaching of the word of God from the church. <clears throat> but we're going to have to take that and do something with our homes. And that's a, a very central place for me to think about. So when you start talking about your home, what kind of home do we need to be building and creating? So we, you know, I guess we got to start like, what is a family? What is it for? And then what kind of building produces that type of fruit? What does that look like? What I, what I, I would say rather than what kind of building produces that kind of fruit, I would say what kind of building is poetically appropriate for that kind of cre mm. for the kind of creature that, that it's housing. Mm. Right. So that's always the, the, that's always the question because if you, because what you want is something that your kids grow up and they look at and they say, these walls, this shape, this house, this is it. It's reflecting back to me what, who I am, right? It's, it's, and, and so we, we have been, you know, my family has lived in apartments. We've been at, I mean, poor as poor can be ran out of heating oil, poor, you know, yeah. sorry kids, you got to wear jackets till next month. Uh, you know, that's what I mean, we, we, uh, and then we've had times where we had um, a good income, you get solid income and um, every, every space my wife has made a hospitable space. Mm. She has looked at our kids and said, I'm going to, how do I turn this into a place where my kids show up and say, I, uh, th this is what it looks like to feel like I have a place, feel welcome in in the world. And we have always had people over for meals. I mean, we had I'm, we 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 had an apartment that literally had a had a hole in the floor so we could see into our downstairs neighbor's apartment. Right? That's you know the, the kind of and 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 my wife would make these would turn these places into uh, places where people would stop by on their way home from work just to say hi, cause they wanted to be there. Right. And th these were ugly ratty buildings that were filled to the brim with the smell of hospitality. Right. Um, that, that would, they, they would fit, it would, she would fill up our table at dinner time in such a way that it didn't matter how many people showed up. Um, we could feed them. And, and my wife is, infamous for for last minute adding somebody to the table right um and and uh a, the but she that was the kind of home that she wanted our kids to grow up in and so she looked at it and said okay this is the space that god has given us i'll put a bookshelf over that hole into that you know that and then our downstairs neighbor would smoke pot and you'd get little puffs of smoke to come up through there so we're trying to figure out how do we stop up the hole um, and, but, but it's, it's a matter of how do you make this space, what it should be for this kind of creature that is the home for these kind of creatures that are little people, little humans that we're, that we're raising up, um, to, to become who God created them to be. Um, and so, you know, that that's, so, so she always filled our house with lots of bookshelves, um, and so that we could fill them with, fill our kids with books. Uh, and then, 
huge table. I mean, the, the first time we could buy it, we, we had hand me a down furniture until we finally bought a table where we built, or we, we, and my wife got us this huge eight foot by four foot table. Um, and then she put benches around it because you can fit more people yeah. uh, in benches than in chairs. Right. So, um, thinking, well, what is it that we have here? We've got hungry souls. They're going to be hungry for food. They're going to be hungry for fellowship. They're going to be hungry for, for knowledge, right? That's what, so, so filling the house with those sorts of things. And as they grew, um, we, we now have two pianos, right? A piano on both ends of the house. Um, we've got guitar hangers all in multiple rooms. Drum set. My in the drum set, you know, because she started to say, okay, we got music, right? We need, we, and this is something that we didn't have when our kids were little. Um, we didn't have yet, but now the house is filled with music all the time, right? Because what kind of creatures are there? Well, they're the kind of creatures that are going to be worshiping God for the rest of their lives. And so that's going to take music. So what watching the way my wife has taken whatever space I've been able to provide. Sometimes it's been little tiny apartments. Sometimes it's been big houses. She's always taken the space and turned it into the kind of place that our kids want to be. Uh, and, and part of that is just that generosity of spirit that she, that is overflowing. But then that turns into beautiful places. Um, you know, you don't, you, uh, there's my, my kids might run into a new idea when they go off to college they're going to right they're going to run into new ideas they go out into the world but they're not going to run into the idea of new ideas because they've been surrounded by books their whole lives they've been filled up with books and um stories and you know their whole lives so running into a new idea isn't going to throw them off um they're going to say wait does it fit with what i know or not know because that's what i've been doing my whole life um the running into somebody that's funny and that laughs a lot um, is not going to throw them off. Somebody that's enjoyable um, running into people that are out of fellowship as my kids have gone out into the world. That's the thing that strikes them. Yeah. No, they I go, see that. Yeah. That's Whoa. I, <clears throat> yeah. That's not something that I know about families out of fellowship, right? Because we've, they've, since they were little, they've been taught to ask for forgiveness when they sin and been told that they were forgiven. And then the sin was set aside. They've been asked for forgiveness since they were little, since before they could say, I forgive you. They have been asked for forgiveness, right? When they were little teeny babies and you get frustrated with them because they won't go to bed. And you know, you sinned against your little baby because, and you ask, forgive you. Will you please forgive me? And then you talk back in their voice. I forgive you, right? You te teach them from when they are just, um, you know, we. And that's we, why we baptize we, kids, people. <laughs> they do, right? Because from when, because you're you are bringing them into their identity that God has told them. You know, God has said, "I am their God," right? Period. I am their God period, right? I will be God to you and I'm a God to your children. And so you say, okay, let me tell you about your God. He has already promised that he's your God. He's already defined himself. He has bound himself covenantally to you. Um, you the, the, um, the, who was that? Who was the president of Westminster that wrote the bind, the, uh, the binding of God? 
now I can't think of it. It's really great. It's on God's covenantal self-binding. It's a beautiful book, but why is it escaping me? Um, but it, 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 it'll, it'll come to me. Okay. Um, I'm just throwing out names it, now. It's, uh, <laughs> it's um, and, and that's what you have, right? You've got, that's the kind of creature that you have that a, the, uh, this, this eternal image bearer that is, um, that is a, a little cathedral, right? That isn't it God's little eternal cathedral that he will be building forever. Um, mm. He's made of words. Mm. And so you talk to them and then you're brought in as part of the constructor, right? You're, you're a subcontractor in God's cathedral project on your kids. Oh, you better right? stop. Said, and, <laughs> and that's what it says. Ephesians, right? It says, build one another up talk about the way you talk to each other it's a construction project, right? Build one another up. Um, edify, I think is the word that is often, it's often used, but edif- it's because they're an edifice, right? They're a little building. So you're edifying them. You're built, you're adding to the edifice Duh. with your words because uh. they're made of words, right? So, um, and that's why you don't, that's why it's so important that you speak kindly to your kids, that you speak gently to your kids and you baptize your kids that's (laughs) you baptize right that you put the name of god on them because he has said that he has claimed them as as his own so jason Uh, let me and that you surround them with the beauty of uh, that's in fellowship and then you know provide what your wife needs to be able to decorate well so part of when you were talking i was thinking i was like yeah man but you still got a problem with the structure Right. Because the structure might not be right. You know, so the building might be messed up. And so you're just talking about what you put in the building. But this is actually this is actually really good because it actually models the current situation we're in where we know how God has made the world. The structures that are around us that we're operating in aren't living up to the standard in which God has designed the world. And just like your family and my family have had to go to environments that actually weren't designed for us to be flourishing as human beings right. in yeah we come well, yeah, into you, you and you even have more kids than me like what when yeah. you go into a house that's designed for four people and you're like yeah except for i don't we got have nine of us right? <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you make that happen yeah. you know but when you come into that environment um you're coming into and it's, this is we come into a fallen world with fallen structures that we have to come in and say all right what does regeneration look like? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And, and so, and, and one of the things that I was listening to you say is like, my wife says, all right, <clears throat> what did God put in his temple? How did God decorate his garden? He put music there. He put, you know, food there and he put fellowship and education there. And so we are going back to the garden and we're putting, I love how you said that with the children. It made me think so differently. If if we are subcontractors who have been, you can think about this with the talent too, where God's giving you these talents and you look at your kids and like, okay, these are arrows, these are talents, these are something you're going to have to give back to God at some point, right? And you're like, okay, did you fill these kids the way that God filled his world? Right. Did you put all the things in there? Did you put the music in there? Did you put the beauty in there? Did you put the poetry in there? Did you put the education in there? Did you this is why government education is a is absolutely uh, intolerable 
to Christianity. <laughs> right. right? It, it, we, we should not tolerate it in any type of way because it doesn't put in there the things that God has put in his cathedral that reflect back to him uh, the beauty of, of, of his creation. It's completely antithetical to that. And so you got to look at it and be like, wait a second. What did God put in his world and how do I take and put that in my kids? Man, that is, when you think about that, okay, okay, what are the songs that we need to be singing? Um, objective beauty, how do I teach my kids what that is? Um, food, how to enjoy it, what to eat, what not. There's all kinds of things when you start thinking about this. You know, you start thinking about this and you say, all of a sudden, nothing in your family life is mundane whatsoever. All of a sudden, everything becomes cathedral building. Right. <laughs> and right. Yeah. and just like any good, beautiful cathedral, it's going to take time and energy and expense to be able to build something that's beautiful and last forever. But, you know, I'm thinking about we're about to we just bought a home. And we're about to move. And I look at the house that we bought and it's nothing that um, it's going to need some work. But I'm so grateful for it. But I'm I mean, it's so grateful. It's going to seat us much better than what we're currently seated right now. We have a place for Two and we've the thing is two and a half three bedroom. We took a bedroom out and put a bathroom in. We got too many bombs, and so <laughs> we had to yep. change some things up. But it's going to see this so well. And I keep thinking about okay, Lord, how how do we take this structure and honor you with it with our children? Because form leads to function. But I think what you just did was not just something that we need to do in the physical environment. It's not just like oh, we tear down a whole bunch of walls because sometimes we can't. But what we do is we say. Where do we put the drape set? <laughs> How do we live in such a way in the world that God begins to knock down the walls and allows for things to expand because we're living in such a way where it's like, oh, you've been faithful with this little? Well, I'll give you much. Right? <laughs> you had right, no, no right. room for pianos and, and floors and holes in the floors, and now I'm going to give you two pianos, drum sets, and guitars because you were always intending to build up my people this particular type of way. And I, it's not an accident that God decides to work in like that, you know, and. Right. Well, yeah, now, so, I mean, yeah, you can see <laughs> right behind me now we've got a 16 foot table. Yeah. You know, we can, we can love have about table. 40 people over for dinner and, and that's, you know, my wife and I built that, that 16 feet worth of table because he gave us this huge library room. And so we can have about 40 people over for meals and I'll sit down and have meals. Now, now our issue is we run out of plates before we run out of places to put people, which is a huge blessing that, that we did haven't had before. Right. God has, has continually expanded our borders um, to provide for my wife's desire to be hospitable, right? Yes, yeah, because it's thing. a good yeah. desire, right? So, you know, um, that, that's, he, he keeps expanding that ability. That, that's the other thing too is that uh, we forget. You know, a lot of times people. I remember there was a huge way of the master. That movement was really about getting out and getting Christians to share the gospel, and people were concerned and scared to share the gospel. They didn't know what to say and how to say it. So the way of the master gave a format for people to be able to use when they go on the streets or wherever they were to be able to walk someone down a particular path of perfect morality, right? And so they used the law and they gave the gospel and that was great. And then it became that if you didn't do this, you weren't actually preaching the gospel out there. You weren't sharing your faith and you're not a Christian. And, and then people, 
in the movement said, okay, we also need apologetics to respond when people have something to say to us because, man, they'll come back with evolution questions and all this stuff like that. And so we got to be able to preach the gospel and got to be able to make a defense. And we put these two things up and everybody ran to apologetics. Everybody ran to how to proclaim the gospel and nobody ran to hospitality. Right. And, And everybody missed the thing. The best apologetic comeback is women who love their husbands love their families and then shine the beauty of that home in such a way that that light says oh what's what's over there and people are attracted to that light and they come down and they eat at the table and they taste the beauty of the gospel i was um and and so we forgot we forgotten that that is the type of thing titus says that's the kind of thing that shuts the mouth of the people of the wicked because they don't got nothing to say about that like I've tasted that spaghetti, man. That mug is good. Them people own something. He now I don't I don't like what he says about politics, but I tell you something. That man loves his family, and a man right, that loves right. his family, well, and, you know. And like uh, you know, my kids are in fellowship with one another. They're they're and you they that's right. Love one another and with with their with their parents, and they you know that they'll um, and. There's something really was well, I was reading yesterday. Um, this is uh, this is Italian poet Petrarch has, and so is he in my songs. book of fifty? I think he's in my book of fifty. He, he might be. Yeah, he's really he was he really is. influential. He invented the sonnet. I mean, he was. He, but he, um, and this is a, a good translation. This is, or this is the translation that I really like. Um, the and uh, this is one hundred and fifty four. Sonnet one fifty four. La le stelle il cielo et gli elementi a prova. That's the name in Italian, which means something like the star. The ceiling and the elements prove it. Our proof. I think that's what that means in Italian. Man, I thought if you're um, about to do this in Italian, it's going to be a very long poem. I was it's like, just, this a, is, just the title. No, but it's supposed to be beautiful, this is, this is Jason. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, th- I think that it might be the star, the sky, and her elements are proof. I think that's what it means in Italian. Okay, Italian's just dirt, dirty Latin, so the <laughs> oh, we. I'll let y'all have that fight. <laughs> okay, um, the stars, the sky, the elements have put together by their art and utmost care this mirror of the sun, which has elsewhere nothing to equal it. This living light, the work is so sublime, graceful, and rare. It is too much for any mortal gaze. For love is raining down into her eyes, all grace and sweetness, always more and more. The air itself burns in this gentle ray with chastity. In such an atmosphere, both speech and thought are vanquished utterly. No wicked thoughts can ever harbor there, but harbor, but honor only. Where else can one see beauty that banishes all base desire? Mm. And he's... He's he's got two images, right? He looks up at the sky, and then he looks at Laura, his love, and he sees the reflection of the sky in her eyes, and he says, "These two beauties, when I grasp them both together, 
it banishes all of my base desires. It banishes the, the, he said, it makes me want what's good and right. And it makes me, because I want to show honor, right? It, it may, it, the, the beauty inspires in me a desire to show honor. Mm. And, um, we don't have that anymore, really anywhere, uh, in our, um, in our imagination, we don't have space for that, but the reality is still there, right? When somebody comes over and sees a family fellowship, it actually affects their desire. It's, it's mm. a thing they can't help, but, but honor and want, even if they, even if it makes them angry, right? You see this sometimes, um, people get mad, um, at something beautiful, right? It makes them angry. And that seems like a weird response, but it makes sense if it is affecting their desires and they don't want their uh, desires affected. That's really right? interesting. So they, they defend, they defend with anger um, against it. I mean, I, I, re- I remember I was going um, over a bridge over the I-90 and uh, in, during a sunset and looking at this back when I was an atheist and seeing the sunset and thinking, man, I wish there was somebody I could say thank you to for that. That's beautiful. <laughs> right. I, the, the thankfulness was there. It, the thankfulness was an, is an, is an impulse, right? It's a, it's a mm. response. Um, and, but I didn't believe there was anyone to say thank you to for it because I thought, um, and I, I used to always I used to always, uh, this was part of my argument for atheism is that if you were to inspect a, uh, the, a sunset under a microscope, all it really is, is pollution that is being, uh, that, that is having an effect on light or having effect on light rays, right? It's changing the speed of light rays. But if you looked at it under a microscope, it's just pollution, Right. That that's there's nothing really truly beautiful about it. It's an illusion. The beauty is an illusion. It didn't mean that when I saw a beautiful sunset, I wasn't moved and affected by it. <laughs> I just I, you know, <laughs> and I and I remember. I mean, I remember thinking, man, I wish there was somebody to say thank you to, but there's not, right? Because the thankfulness just you know grows up within us. That's we can't help that. And that's why that's one of the things that makes why beauty makes some atheists really angry or they are always trying to explain it away. And that's right. the, yep. Yep. Uh, that's yeah. getting past the watch. You look dragons. at it under a microscope, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, right. And you know what? And that's, that's part of our problem. When we are arguing, we're arguing underneath the microscope. Um, and instead of saying, Hey, why don't you come over here and have a amazing smoke barbecue chicken sandwich. Right. And they're like, oh, I hate, I hate you, but this barbecue sandwich yeah. is amazing. We're having, yeah. I, I know, yeah. isn't it? I mean, now, me, it is. Meat prices keep going up, but we used to, that was one of the tricks that we, to be able to have huge groups of people over is you go buy the least expensive meat and just smoke it all day. And it's pork, pork shoulders. <laughs> That's what I do, man. It's pork shoulder, yeah, pork shoulder or chicken thighs. And just yeah. like, you know, I actually burned down my uh, my last the barbecue my last barbecue with because I tried I packed it too full of chicken thighs, and then uh, it lit on fire, <laughs> a huge fire in the backyard. 
<laughs> because I was trying to cook for too many people in, at once. Well, I, I had I had tipped them on their side and then like lined them up, and I was it was. That's okay. It, it just work. means God has to bless you now with something bigger to do some more. Yeah, cooking for now. More I've people. got a really. I got a for Christmas. I got a big new big smoker. Oh snap, man, dude! <laughs> it's been two weeks. This is this has been good. This is good stuff. I um, I know we will wrap, but I got to ask you before I run. Um, did you get a chance to read that monologue at all? I watched it. Oh, even worse. Wait, yeah. <laughs> no, it, 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 it was good. I mean, I get, I, I get exactly what you're saying is that honor is a distinctly, it, it, the, the kind of honor that we are trying to retain with a cal with a, calendar event with a memorial on our calendar memorial day is a calendrical memorial it's a calendar it's a memorial event that we put on the calendar to remind us to show honor right and so we have you this and that's um you know you get those in uh in the old testament you you put something on the calendar as a memorial uh, but you also get memorial stones or you know memorial yeah. Um, we so either places or time um, where you the purpose of that thing is to pull <laughs> us back to a connection that we're supposed to, that we're that needs to be renewed regularly. Mm-hmm. Generationally, we need to renew certain connections and affections, and so um, and that's a distinctly Christian thing right because it's um, covenantal um, by nature you know, yeah because it's covenantal by nature yeah or it, it's not even I, I don't even know if distinctly christian i think it's it's a metaphysic that's right that is currently being rejected but that was universally held um it, in when we believed in a real connection to the past you know re, um I was thinking about that because I was like, man, but that's why I had. Um, so part of it's my my point was that Christianity teaches us how to do it right, but it's instinctive yeah. to humanity, right? Well, you can't avoid it. No matter what tribe you go to, they have salutes for their fallen warrior. Everybody has it because it's built. To, it's a covenantal reality, right? So right. you can't escape it because, like you said, it's a metaphysical reality. Man is going to do this. He's designed that way. You know, how do I, how but do I, this is, ahead. this is one of the things though, that I think COVID re, it was re, revelatory. It was apocalyptic in kind of a technical Greek sense. Apocalypse means revealing, right? It was a, it, it had a revealing effect on how many of our cultural events either on our calendar or it were habitual and no longer had any substance because mm. they went away with, they went away with no complaint. No one, you know, when they tried to take away Christmas, there were a lot of people that were like, yeah, no, that's not happening. Right. You're not, you can't, you don't get to cancel Christmas. Right. Um, the, where the government tried to, I think they were test. This is, I'm turning into a conspiracy theorist, but <laughs> I think there was a test. It was in some ways it was testing how much can we actually take away that will separate yes. these people from their history, separate them from one another, you know, and and really um, 
you know, double down on that kind of sexually liberated social monad idea that modernism brings because moderns, it turns out, were incredibly susceptible to tyranny. Right. Modern man, modernist man was incredibly susceptible to tyranny. It didn't matter if it came from the fascists, from the socialists, from the communists. They jumped on it and were like, yay, something that will hold us together. But it's because (laughs) sexually liberated social monads um, are floating halfway between the sky ground and they're haunting their own lives and not living them. And so a a tyrant that comes in and says i'll fix it for you they uh, they jump on board in mass and i think that this was an attempt <laughs> to see how far down that yep. line um, americans had gotten I think um, right. and all sorts of things just disappeared off the calendar and we don't even and we're not even thinking twice about it and they replaced it with pride month and you know like what is that that's nothing that is not a thing. That is not a memorial of anything. It's not a real thing. That's not a real calendar event. Right. And it's a capital. It's like Mother's Day. It's a capitalist event that um, that was invented for capitalist purposes, period. And not not the good kind of capitalism. I'm talking like crony capitalism, fascist, uh, fascist capitalism, capitalism in terms of. Um, you know, not not real capitalism, but the where the government at um jumps in and says, "I'm going to work together with you on this." I this has been it's been amazing to see everybody just go along with it, like, "Oh yeah, June, that's that's a a thing, right?" Like June is Pride Month. What is that? That's a that's a weird attempt at a a social revolution or a social engineering revolution that says we will impose on you a new identity because the calendar is our connection to the past. The events that come every year, the events that come uh, weekly and yearly are, that's our, that's our connection to the identity of our people. And they've just said, we're, we're going to, Re, rewrite it, rebuild it. We'll tear down the old calendar, put up a new one. I mean, they, they, in after the French Revolution, they tried a 10 day work week to try and separate us from the calendar of the, of Christianity, separate from the calendar of creation. Um, they, they did the same thing with communist Russia, right? New calendar, new work week. They started the calendar over at one with the French Revolution. Year one. Um, so, so everything like that is an attempt at saying we're a different kind of people than we are because we're no longer really trusted to the traditions of our people, to the people <coughs> of the past. Right. So it's an attempt to rebuild humanity in a new image. Um, and I mean, I think. And I don't <laughs> I don't know if we had, until we have churches that actually remember the church calendar, I don't think we have any resistance. 